Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. Whether you are a longtime Hopester or checking us out maybe for the first time, we are really glad that you are here. Uh, that was a clip from a movie called The White Helmets. You can actually stream it on Netflix now if you're looking for a really uplifting film. Uh, actually, it is pretty uplifting. We're going to watch um, three different clips from it over the course of, of the message today. But it, it's a heavy topic. And the message today is going to be a heavy message, so I want to start off the message with something, I don't know if lighthearted is the right term for it, but it'll have a little bit different mood. As you can imagine, uh, people who would volunteer to serve for the Peace Corps and go all over the world on adventures of humanitarian uh, service, they have to undergo a lot of training before they would go to those parts of the world. So a couple of years ago, the people training these Peace Corps volunteers who were making their way to South America decided to have a little bit of fun with them. And when the volunteers gathered for training, they were handed a fictitious manual, that's an important phrase, a fictitious manual with this title, what to do if attacked by an anaconda. Uh, we actually have talked about this at Hope before, it was five years ago or something, we were worshiping in uh, the middle school gymnasium, but just like CPR certification, you have to be reminded every couple of years so that you're prepared, so here's your opportunity to be prepared for an anaconda attack. Step one, if you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run, the snake is faster than you are which is just horrible when you stop and think. I think the reason I'm thinking about snakes is because we've been watching Stranger Things at our house, and I'm, what do you do when attacked by these alien snake-like things? Anyway, step two, lie flat on the ground. Step three, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight against one another. It doesn't seem to be like a good strategy so far, does it? Step four, the snake will begin to climb over your body. Anyone get goosebumps as we read through that? Step five, do not panic. Now, as important as those first five steps are, the next five are even more important, so we'll take them one at a time. <laughs> Step six, the snake will begin to swallow you from the feet end. Step seven, step six will take a long time. <laughs> Can you imagine the volunteers just sitting there? Right? You know, oh, yeah. uh, step eight, after a while, Slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the snake's mouth. Then, suddenly, sever the snake's head. <laughs> Step nine, be sure your knife is sharp. <laughs> Step ten, be sure you have your knife. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be a pretty bad strategy. Now, <laughs> why do I walk you through those steps? Well, I wanted to be sure there was at least one thing you would remember from the sermon when you go home. Uh, what did the pastor talk about today? Uh, no, not really. I, life is filled with crises moments, isn't it? And the longer you live, you, the more you realize it's not a matter of if but when the next crisis is going to hit. Your life or the life of your family or the life of somebody that you know and that you love. And so part of what it means to be people of faith is how do we faithfully prepare ourselves for facing the crises that come into our life. When, when I look at the white helmets, that's what is going on. They are preparing, they are training for the next bombing so that they can go and do what? So they can rescue the people of their community. We're making our way through the book of Esther this month. Today we get to the part of the story where Esther is making preparations to save, to rescue her people. Let's make sure we're all on the same page as we get to this part of the story. We started off looking at the Assyrian Empire and the king, a guy by the name of Xerxes, a lot of power, a lot of wealth, very little character. So when his wife 
has the audacity to say no to him. He banishes her, and now he's looking for a new queen. That ends up being Esther. But remember, we talked about the reality for Esther. Even though she's the queen, even though she's in the palace, she had very little power. She had to go through a series of degrading and humiliating and abusive experiences in order to become queen. And even when she's wearing the crown, Mordecai, her adoptive father says to her, whatever you do, don't let anybody know who you really are. Don't let anybody know your ethnic background because there are people in this world who will mistreat you if they think you're of the wrong ethnicity. Last week, Eli introduced us to the villain of the story, a guy named Haman. Haman was the prime minister of the Persian Empire, a second in command, and Haman was a genocidal maniac. He hated the Jews. All kinds of reasons for this that stretched back several generations, several centuries in his family's history. But the latest thing that upset him and made him so mad and, and angry at the Jews was Mordecai. And it's interesting, if you read through the story, a lot of times it doesn't just say Mordecai. A lot of times it adds a qualifier, Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai the Jew refused to bow down to Haman makes him so mad, he goes to the king and gets Xerxes to pass a law that says at some point on a day um, in the near future, they pass the law that said anyone anywhere in the kingdom can kill any Jew that they want to kill. And whoever kills them, you get their property, you get their home, you get their belongings, that sort of thing. Mordecai finds out about Haman's plot and he goes to Esther and he says to her what is probably the most recognizable verse in the story of Esther, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And it's that phrase in the middle of that verse, you were made queen, that I want us to focus in on as we get started. My question is, who made Esther queen? Who made Esther queen? And I suppose some people, as they're reading through the story, a story in the Bible, they would come to the conclusion, well, God made Esther queen. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is the puppet master pulling strings and all. And so for you, it's pretty easy. Well, if she becomes queen, it's because God wanted her to be queen. And so just my gentle kind of nudge to you would be, okay, do you think that way about every ruler who sits on every throne and every position of power in our world today? Well, God wants him there, so that's fine. Some people might read through the story and say, well, God's name is actually never used in the entire book, so it can't be God who made Esther queen. It must be the king who made Esther queen. I don't know where you land on that. I don't know what your answer to the question would be, who made Esther queen? Last weekend, I wasn't here. I was at a lake in southern Iowa with my college buddies. It's the 14th year that we've gotten together for an extended weekend at, at that particular lake. We started doing it in uh, the summer of 2006. And at that particular time, everyone was kind of in a season of transition. And so my friend Jason was getting ready to move to California where he was going to be a pastor at a church out there. Uh, my buddy Flick was moving to Oklahoma City. He was going to pastor a church there. I was moving to some place called Ankeny, Iowa, where I was going to pastor a church there. And Brad and Coach, a couple other buddies, they were making uh, career changes as well. And so we had a lot of important things to talk about just in terms of what's happening in our life. And that continues to be the case every time we get together. We had a have a lot of fun, we're very lazy, we eat a lot of meat, and we float in the water and are just kind of lazy. But we also talk about important kinds of things. And so last Saturday, we're, we're floating in the lake, and uh, Brad asked us, when you look back over your life, 
and you think about kind of the decisions that you've made and how you've ended up where you currently are, there are these defining moments, these defining decisions in life, right? And he said, what would be one or two decisions that you look back on and you go, man, if I had made a different decision in that moment, life would be really different today for the good or for the bad. And so we were talking about that. And uh, my buddy Coach started to tell a story, and we call him Coach because our junior year at Central College, we won the intramural basketball championship because we're such fantastic athletes. And um, Coach wasn't on the team. He wasn't good enough at basketball. But he would show up at our games. He would show up at our intramural games wearing a sports jacket, and he had a clipboard. And he would call timeouts for us, and he would yell at the refs, and he would keep statistics of our intramural games. So anyway, we started to call him Coach, and it stuck. And Coach was telling a story. Ten years ago or so, uh, he was making a decision to take a job that would require his family moving out of state. And so he and his wife sat down their kids to talk to them about this move because any kind of change like that can be traumatic. It can be emotional upheaval for kids. And so they just wanted to, you know, they cried and, uh, scary, how's this going to work? And they made it through that conversation And he gets on the phone to officially accept the position. And he's kind of met with stunned silence on the other end of the line. And finally they say, we didn't think you were actually interested in the job. And so we gave it to somebody else. There is no job available for it. And coach is like, did I tell my boss at my current job that I'm looking? Thankfully he hadn't said anything and so he still had a job. But, But then coach said something very interesting. He said, you know, this is not easy for me to say, but, but I look back on that, and it's one of those moments in life where it seems like God's fingerprints were all over that situation. Seems like God's fingerprints were all over that situation. When I do spiritual gifts tests, you know, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascends back to the Father after his three years of earthly ministry, he says, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit will fill you and lead you and guide you and empower you with gifts of the Spirit. So the New Testament writers talk about these different kinds of gifts that the Spirit gives us. When I take these tests, one of the top gifts for me has always been faith. And part of what that means is it's very easy for me to see the fingerprints of God on certain situations. But it's not that way for everyone. And so one of the reasons we dig into the Bible every time we gather together, one of the reasons we want to become familiar with the stories of the Bible, the more biblically fluent we become, we start to see the way God intervened in the lives of people in the Old Testament and God intervened in the lives of people in the New Testament. And we start to see ways and patterns and and think maybe that's how God might intervene in my life and in our world today in similar kinds of ways. So think back of the stories of God intervening in people's lives. What about Joseph in the Old Testament? Uh, Joseph is one of uh, 12 sons of Jacob. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is one of them, and he's the favorite son, which makes the other brothers jealous. Now, sibling rivalry is nothing new. Uh, Brothers and sisters have often been jealous of one another. Uh, In their jealousy, Joseph's brothers decide the best thing to do is sell him as a slave, And so he ends up a slave in Egypt. And as a slave, he gets wrongfully accused of a crime and thrown into prison. And you would imagine after all of these horrible things happening in Joseph's life, he maybe would give up on faith. 
I'm not sure that God is actually that involved or active in my life based on these circumstances that are happening to me. But that's not what he does. And he ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt, just like Haman is prime minister of of Persia. And as prime minister, he uh, does some really wise things like when they have bumper harvests, how about we set aside some of the crop and we can use that later on on the years that maybe there's a famine. And it turns out there's a famine in the region and his brothers have to come to Egypt to get food. And there's this reunion. (laughs) What do you suppose that reunion was like, right? What's going on in Joseph's heart and mind? What's going on in the hearts and minds of his brothers when they recognize this brother that they were so jealous of, they basically tried to kill by selling him as a slave. Now he has all the power. He has the power to make them slaves. He has the power to exact revenge on them. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. How would you respond in a situation like that if you had been treated like that? Here's how Joseph responds. Don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me, he says to his brothers. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. Joseph has options. He could choose to overcome the evil that was done to him with more evil. Instead, he chooses to overcome evil with good. The entire family ends up moving to Egypt and they all live happily ever after. (laughs) Not really. Two Two or three generations later, there's a new king on the throne in Egypt who forgets about Joseph, doesn't know Joseph. And he views Joseph's family as a threat to his power. And so they become slaves and they're slaves for over 400 years in Egypt. And remember, at one point they pass a law that says anytime a Hebrew baby boy is born, they must immediately be killed. Very similar to what Haman is doing uh, in the Persian Empire. And so when Moses is born, his, babies ha- uh, his parents have to hide him. Don't let anybody know his ethnicity. Just like Mordecai says to Esther, don't let anybody know your ethnicity. And they put him in a basket and float him down the Nile River. Decades later, God uses Moses to save the people of Israel. Rescue them from slavery in Egypt takes them to freedom in the promised land. And along the way, they end up at Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses is given the Ten Commandments and a bunch of rules and regulations and instructions. How do you live together as God's people? And at one point up on the mountain, Moses says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And here's how God responds. I'll hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind. Martin Luther, the great reformer, as he's reading through this passage and trying to make sense of it, he starts talking about something called deus absconditus, the hiddenness of God. If you know anything about Luther, you know that he had lots of times in his life where God seemed absent. God seemed to be not present. Luther suffered from depression. Luther would be just racked with guilt over his sin-filled life in such a way that he couldn't believe that God might love him, God might have grace for him and forgiveness for him. God just seemed so distant. And, and Luther realized he's not the only one that has those kinds of feelings, those kinds of moments. When we go through times in our life, times of loss, uh, times of hardship, uh, times of, of grief and pain and hurt, and God seems to be nowhere Luther would look to this idea of the hiddenness of God from Exodus 33, and Luther became convinced this is what faith is all about. 
How do you, as you are making decisions in your life and you don't know what decision to make and you're maybe not necessarily thinking this could be a defining moment for me, maybe you're just stressed out about what decision to make and what we would really like would be for God to say, here's what you should do. Make this decision. Go this way. Luther says, if God did that, if God just would direct us in that before we have to make any decisions, then faith would not be required. And so a big part of the way faith works is we make decisions and we pray and we trust and and we figure out as best we can what is God up to, but often it's not until we look back on it later. It's only with hindsight, it's only after something has happened that we are able to see God's presence in it from behind. And we start to see that even though we felt like maybe God was absent and not involved, the fingerprints of God are all over that thing. Moses is leading the people to freedom. It should have taken a couple of weeks to travel from, uh, or maybe a couple of months at the most, to travel from Egypt to the Promised Land. It ends up taking 40 years. (laughs) And at the end of the 40 years, God and Moses are having another conversation. And God says to Moses, here's what's going to happen. You're actually going to die and you're not going to get to go into the promised land. Uh, Thanks for all your help, though. And then God says the people of Israel are going to make it into the promised land and it's actually going to go really well for them. So well that they're going to forget about God. Or, Or maybe it would be more accurate to say things will go so well for them they will become convinced they do not need God. That all the good things they are enjoying in their life, it's because of me. My effort, my work, uh, my wisdom, my planning, my skill. And so they will turn their backs on God. And here's what God says to Moses, Deuteronomy 31, 18. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. At that time, I will hide my face from them. It's not easy to see at first read, but this verse is all about Esther. Just like Moses has that time where God hides his face from Moses, but then Moses is able to see God from behind. God is saying, a time is coming where I'm going to do the same thing for the entire nation of Israel. I will hide my face from them, but they will be able to see me from behind. Uh, The way this phrase gets written in the Hebrew language, the phrase, I will hide my face from them, uh, here's what it looks like. Remember, in Hebrew, you read from right to left. So read this out loud with me. Uh, I'll just tell you what it says. I will hide, hide from them my face. The word hide gets repeated two times in there. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to see that's the similar word, right? The same four letters, A-S-T-R, A-S-T-R. I will hide, hide from them my face, A-S-T-R, astare. It's the Hebrew word that means hidden or to conceal. When you Persianify it, it becomes an E instead of an A. It's Esther. I will Esther, Esther my face from them. Part of what God is saying, even before the people enter the promised land, uh, even before they experience all the good things that God has for them, I want you to remember this idea of the hiddenness of God. Because for every single human being, there are going to be these times in our lives where God just seems to be absent. It's when we need to remember the hiddenness of God. Even when we can't see, even when we can't feel, even when it's hard to trust, 
God is present always. God is at work always. The fingerprints of God are doing something. And what are they always doing? The fingerprints of God always lead to rescue and deliverance and salvation. Think about Joseph. Think about Moses and the people of Israel. Think about Esther. The fingerprints of God always lead to salvation. Take a look at this second clip from the White Helmets. Last March, I got to go visit the Holy Land for the first time, and we spent a couple of days in the northern region of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. And one afternoon, our bus driver took us up into the Golan Heights, which is kind of the northeast region of Israel. And at one point, we just stopped at an overlook, and we all got out of the bus, and this was the scene that we saw. Uh, David Harrison, who's a member here at Hope, took this picture, and our tour guide, Stav, was explaining what we were looking at. So you kind of look down a valley, and in the middle of this image, you see a compound filled with kind of white buildings. It's a United Nations compound, and this valley is actually the demilitarized zone between the Golan Heights and the nation of Syria. And Stav said, if you keep going about 40 miles, you'd get to Damascus. And if you went 250 miles, which is roughly the difference between Des Moines and the Twin Cities, you would end up in Aleppo, which is that city that's just being bombarded in that movie, The White Helmets. And, you know, as we were driving up to that location along the side of the road, there were these warning signs. And we asked Stav, what do the signs say? He said, oh, landmines. On the other side of the fence, they've, just, they've got landmines everywhere. Nobody knows where they are. They let cattle, you know, graze in the pasture there. But, yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm looking into Syria, and I know about the Syrian refugee crisis, and I know about ISIS, and I know about Russia. And, and part of what I found myself thinking is, what causes a human being? What, what causes a group of people, a country, a government to get so filled with hate that they are willing to just wipe out communities, wipe out homes, wipe out uh, families, kill civilians. And I think the book of Esther provides some answers. The chapter we're looking at this week is chapter 6. In many ways, this is a it's no accident you're here kind of chapter. That's what we say at the beginning of every worship service, right? It's no accident you're here. It's our way of saying God's fingerprints are all over everything including your being at a worship service at this very moment. It's no accident you're here. In the book of Esther, chapter 6, King Xerxes is having trouble sleeping, and it's no accident he's having trouble sleeping. He decides to call for some of his servants to read to him the history of his reign, which is similar to me when I'm having trouble sleeping. I just like to listen to podcasts of my sermons. No. But it's no accident that those servants read the particular part of his history where Mordecai the Jew uncovers an assassination plot. And so uh, King Xerxes is like, did we ever do anything to honor him or to thank him for that? I haven't done anything. It's no accident, at just that moment, Haman enters the royal palace, the courtyard. And so Haman is there to ask the king, would it be okay, could I have your permission to impale Mordecai the Jew on a pole tomorrow? But before he has the opportunity to ask that question, the king has a question for Haman. Next slide. What should I do, the king asks Haman, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? He's thinking about Mordecai. What should he do for Mordecai? Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? What causes a human being to get to a point 
that they are so filled with hate they're willing to kill, they're willing to commit genocide like Haman is plotting. It's pride. Pride is ultimately what's behind that. Pride is what causes Haman to think the king must be talking about me. Surely he's talking about me. It's pride that makes Haman so angry when Mordecai the Jew refuses to bow down to him. I don't know what your definition of pride is, but one way of thinking about pride is simply self-absorption. That that everything in my life, all, all the focus, all the attention in my life, it has to be about me. Now, if that's the definition of pride, then there's actually two forms of pride. There's a one-up kind of superiority form of pride. The way we typically think about pride is I'm better than everybody else, and and the whole point of life is to make sure you know how great I am. But there's also a one-down form of pride, the inferiority form of pride, where, where you're just constantly beating yourself up. I don't look good enough. I feel like a failure in everything that I do, and I mess that up again, and you don't like how you look at it, but again, it's all, the focus is self. It's self-absorption just from a one-down standpoint rather than a one-up standpoint. Two forms of pride, self-absorption. And you think about it, pride, self-absorption, whatever the focus of your life, the focus of your attention, whatever that is, that actually becomes the God in your life. And so pride, taken to the extreme, is putting yourself on the throne saying, I'm the one who wears the crown. I'm the one who has all the power. And so in its most extreme form, pride would fill a person with delusions of power, with warped and distorted understandings of power. I'm God, and what that means is the most powerful thing in the world is the power to be able to take a life. Think about Satan. We don't talk about Satan very often, but Satan shows up all over the place in the Bible. It's a Hebrew word that means adversary, but it's the personification of evil in the scriptures. The Old Testament writers, they describe Satan as a fallen angel, that Satan led a rebellion in heaven because Satan wanted to be God. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven uh, like a star. So Satan wants to be God, and Satan shows up right away at the very beginning of the Bible in the third chapter of Genesis in the form of an anaconda, no, not, but a serpent, in the form of a serpent. And the writer of Genesis is trying to get us to understand something very important, that kind of the root, the underlying root of all kinds of rebellion against God is pride. Trying to get Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, serpent says, your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. You will be like God. You'll have the power. You'll have all the power. And again, taken to its extreme, pride says the most powerful thing in the world is the ability to take a life. So, the part of the message that I really hope you remember, if you remember nothing else, it's not the anaconda bit. It's this idea that that is a distorted, perverted understanding of power, and particularly of the power of God. I I hope you will wrestle with this thought. I hope you will argue with me on it. I hope you will talk about it at your homes and in your small groups. But Jesus shows us real power is not the taking of life, but the saving of life. Real power is not the taking of life, but the saving of life. 
I look at those white helmets, and, and part of what is so impressive to me about them is the way they're willing to use whatever power, whatever resources at their disposal to save lives. That, that clip we just watched, the guy's running up the steps of that building. Who needs rescuing? Who needs rescuing? What, what if we believe that's who God is? I mean, we, we, in many ways, we're blessed to live where we live, right? We don't have to worry about, are there bombs today? Are there missiles today? But in also another very real way, we live in a dangerous part of the world. Maybe not uh, in terms of our physical safety, but in terms of our spiritual lives. We live in a part of the world where the temptation to succumb to pride is so great. Where it's so easy for us to say all the good things that we enjoy in our life, it's because of me. I'm the one who did it. I'm the one that's putting in all the work and all the effort and making all the plans, and I've got the wisdom and the skills. We live in this do-it-yourself culture, which is great in so many ways, and it's killing us spiritually. And so when the preacher starts talking about God wants to save you, a lot of times when we have this superiority form of pride, we just roll our eyes and shrug our shoulders like, what do I need to be saved from? Same time, this inferiority form of pride is rampant in our culture. So one of the great privileges, honors that I have as a pastor, a lot of people are willing to talk to the pastor about a lot of the brokenness and the hurt and the relational dysfunctions in their life, things that you just wouldn't even believe, but they're willing to talk to me about it. They would be embarrassed, they would be ashamed if anybody else knew about it. Think about Adam and Eve. Before they eat the forbidden fruit, Scripture says they're naked and without shame. As soon as they bite into the forbidden fruit, they're filled with shame, and what's the first thing they do? They hide. So in our culture, this inferiority, one-down kind of understanding of pride, it causes us in our shame to hide the brokenness and the pain of our lives from God and from our neighbors and from our family members. We hide it, and then the other, when the preacher starts talking about God wants to save you, inferiority form of pride says, oh yeah, I need to do that. I, I need to do whatever it takes to save myself. And so the superiority form of pride says, I don't need to be saved. The inferiority form of pride says, it's up to me to save myself. Both forms create a lot of pain in this world, a lot of pain in our lives. And so thank God, we have a God who's willing to enter into the pain and the brokenness and the hurt and the dysfunction of this world. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We love that verse because it's a reminder to us, God is willing to use whatever resource at his disposal to rescue, to deliver, to heal, to save us, right? To save us. John 3.16, God loves us. What does John 3.17 say? Let's read this out loud together. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. You need to be saved. I need to be saved. And it's not a one and done kind of deal. This is an ongoing thing. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is the saving work that God needs to be doing in your life these days? And do you understand you cannot save yourself? One more scene from this movie, The White Helmets. As you watch this, I hope you will see the powerful love of God to save you, to save this world. Take a look. The motto of the White Helmets is to save one life is to save all of humanity. 
Uh, so tomorrow we start Vacation Bible School. Our theme this year is Built for God. Can we all say that together? Built for God. Say it one more time. Built for God. It's the idea that we're building a kingdom culture here. In the midst of a world that's filled with all kinds of rubble, maybe it's not the rubble of buildings that have fallen, that have been bombed, but maybe it's the rubble of relationships that have experienced some kind of, I don't know, emotional, psychological, bombing, warfare, whatever it might be. And so we're going to be doing a bunch of skits and we're going to be having a lot of fun this week and we're going to be wearing helmets. Hopefully you saw in the Hope 360, everybody's got these, you know, construction hats on. We're going to be having a lot of fun, yes, but make no mistake about it. The reason we do Vacation Bible School is to save one life. You, you, you might think, oh, we don't have real issues in a place like central Iowa. Talk to your friends who are teachers. Uh, talk to your friends who are guidance counselors. Talk to your friends who work for the police or firefighters or ATF. And they will tell you stories that will just blow your mind, things that are situations kids are in in our community. And so we're throwing the doors wide open here in Ankeny, but at all of Hope's campuses, so that we can shine a light into some major darkness that kids have to live with and try to live through. We can't save any of them, but we can point them to the one who has the power to save and to heal and to rescue. So we've got 500 volunteers. If you're one of them, thank you. If you're not one of them, please be praying for us, praying for what God is going to do. I want us to be a church of white helmets, people who choose to enter the pain and the brokenness of this world to point people to the salvation of Jesus Christ.